Hey, it's Jeff Benjamin here with the Investment News Podcast. Another episode coming at you. Got Bruce Kelly with me. How you doing, Bruce? I'm great, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing fantastic again. Um, we have some good topics to kind of get into this week. What are we talking about, Jeff? It's those PPP loans. They, they, it's the oh, loans I love them. You hate them. They, they never go away. I don't hate them. I, uh, I'm, I'm not as in love with them as you are. But uh, why don't you why don't you break it down for me? Because uh, I know you wrote something about it this week. What what uh, what else are we talking about? Let's give the people. Oh yeah, time. all right. I'll give you the full rundown. Don't be greedy. We got uh, the PPP loans. We're gonna pick yep. that apart. The non-transparent ETFs, or some people Uh-oh. call them semi-transparent ETFs. This is that something sounds that complicated. It's a it's a product that is, I think, being you know looking for a for an investor or a buyer. And then Satera, uh, one of your favorite companies, has a new head of recruiting, and uh, we're gonna see if they, they always can, make news. Satera, yeah, if if they can turn around uh, that recruiting uh, slump, give it a bit of a jolt. And then at this point in the market cycle, where are things going? We're still dealing with uh, the COVID thing. We still got high unemployment. Uh, we're in a recession. Is this the time to be kind of diversifying into alternative investments? And I know you love alternatives, Bruce. Uh oh. And finally, <laughs> wrapping it up with the open notebook segment. This is a fan favorite. The I love open it. notebook segment. Uh, we uh, we we wrapped uh, Bruce Kelly and shrink wrap this week and sent him back into the the New York office. And, I went to the lunar. Uh, the, hear, I went to the lunar landscape of Midtown Manhattan. Yes, right. Aside from an old tuna sandwich left in the fridge, we're going to see what uh, what happened and what it's going to be like for all of you folks going back to the world of office work. With that, Bruce, kick us off on these uh, these pesky PPP loans. Well, these are PPP, that's Paycheck Protection Program, right? Correct. So these were part of the $3 trillion stimulus, right? And uh, a good chunk of that was intended to go to small businesses. Now, in our little world, our little world of the financial advice business, the financial advice industry, a lot of attention has been paid to uh, registered investment advisors, RIAs, getting these loans. Um, you've written about that. Mm-hmm. And the question raised there is, do they really deserve these loans, I think, is what you would say. Right. Because they um, work on a, uh, you know, they charge a fee on assets. So it's not like owning a bakery or a restaurant that's been shut down, right, for two, three, four months. And that's gone completely dark. So earlier this week, the Small Business Administration released the uh, recipients of these various loans. And there were a lot of RAs that took this money, but there were a lot of small broker dealers who did too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought it was fascinating because broker-dealers are a lot like RIAs, right? They rely on technology. They, not people so much. They uh, charge a 1% fee on assets in the neighborhood of 1% as RIAs do. And then uh, in my conversations with broker-dealer executives, since March, you know, the cash registers were, were ringing at these brokerage firms because people were trading, right? They were getting out of stocks, going into bonds, going to cash, buying annuities. There was a, 
you know, there was a flurry of trading activity in March and April Mm -hmm. as the market was going crazy, right? So these firms took a lot of money, took a lot of PPP money as well. So I got one of the owners of a, like a mid-sized broker dealer with several hundred advisors um, on the phone and asked him about this. His name's Lon Dolber. He's the CEO and owner of a firm called American Portfolios. They're based out on Long Island. And I said, Lon, you know, you know you're one of these uh, kind of conservative-minded guys w- who believe that government shouldn't intrude and, and, you know, in business and regulation should be as minimal as possible, which is what a lot of these guys think. And uh, why did you take this money? And he said, well, I really had to. He gave me a great answer. He said, I had to protect my employees. <laughs> okay. And the, the demand from the advisors for services from the back office was so great that he had people work on the weekends. So he needed yeah. extra money for extra staffing. And then he hired people, too, to do more work. And that's why he applied for the loan. And that's why he took it. I think it was up around a million bucks or something like that. There was different levels of these loans as well. Yeah. And, you know, he used it <laughs> to pay his employees, right, To and protect people's livelihoods. That's exactly. And that's what the money was intended for, right? A hundred percent. So I don't know why you hate this program, Jeff. Well, I don't hate the program, but I think a broker-dealer, their business model is different than a fee-based financial advisory firm. Yes, it is. Right. There might be some fee-based business in a broker-dealer. There's a lot. There's also commissions and there's other things. It's, it's, it's a much more complex business model than a fee-based financial advisory firm. And that was my original criticism of RIAs right. that are fee-based taking PPP loans. And as I've said before, I wrote about this in March when these things were first talked about. They weren't even being distributed yet. I said these these financial advisory firms, especially the smaller ones that are not super complex business models, they got $100 million under management and it's all fee-based and there's a couple of employees, maybe just one employee, the advisor, their income is not impacted by COVID. Uh, their income is not impacted by the economy shutting down. Yeah, they're, if the market goes down, their assets under management go down and their fees go down. But that's the game you're in. Okay, you are in. You set up your business to get paid based on assets under yeah, management. You sign up for that, right? When you become so an advisor, you understand. That's that. yeah, of course my problem right. with fee-based firms taking this money. And I know a lot of people say, well, what's all the blowback about what's all, you know, Ritholtz is a great example. They got so much blowback that Josh Brown, a king on Twitter, hasn't tweeted since May 27th because he got. I'm still sad about that. Criticized I miss Josh. so much. Uh, but I understand. Josh, come back. He, I understand. Come he, back, buddy. He please. Wrote a, uh, he wrote a blog that they did pay back their loan. So. Right. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, they paid it back. Maybe it was pressure. Maybe it was, you know, part of the cancel culture or something like well, that. Well, I think I mean, it turns into a grant. If you don't use the money, you can pay it back. You know? Uh, well, also, if you violate some of the rules of it, right. of the of the loan, you have to pay it back. But if but you, do you want to hear something you, interesting, Jeff, about one of these firms that got the, G, the PPP money? Yeah. So 
We've been writing for over two years about this private placement firm, uh, GPB Capital, they're called. Mm-hmm. And uh, they sold like a billion and a half, uh, 1.5, 1.8 billion of private placements through different, uh, through about 60 broker dealers. They're the manager of the private placements. The broker dealers sell them, get big fat commissions from them. And um, GPB is under investigation by Massachusetts. Its offices have been raided by the FBI. The SEC has made inquiries into it. It hasn't paid any uh, a steady uh, distribution to the investors in over two years. It hasn't done its accounting. <laughs> There's no accounting for any of the private placements. Mm-hmm. No one knows what on earth is going on at this place. They got around between, they applied for PPP money and they got it. Yeah. Around three to $7 million worth. I called them up. They, you know, so to me, it's ridiculous. Is that money going to go back to the shareholders? What are they going to do with that money? They wouldn't tell me, of course. Uh, Yeah, nobody's denying that there's gaps in this system. Um, And and I'm familiar with that situation you're talking about. To me, they're under investigation, and there's clearly a dark cloud hanging over that company. Right. But, I mean, being under investigation shouldn't prevent you from applying for this kind of money. But you haven't paid your shareholders in two years, buddy. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, you know, it, it looks bad, but, um, I'd like to wait for the final ruling on that one, but yeah, <laughs> clearly it's, it's, I mean, yeah, I'm not denying, I'm not going to defend this company. I don't know anything about that case. Right. But, um, you know, and I'm not a fan of a lot of companies taking these loans anyway, but I do know that there's only so much money there and, it seems like we all have to be responsible citizens and recognize that there are some businesses that are just completely shut down. I mean, doors close, lights off. Right. Those are businesses that need this money. Not right. somebody that's taking money because, oh, the market went down so and, and the money's there and I've got enough lawyers on hand to be able to apply for these loans and get the money. Just because it's there and it's available, to me, that's where I have a problem with it. And, you know, I don't know. So if some of these companies get shamed in with the big list, and there's a big list out there of financial services companies yes, there are. Uh, taking this money. There is. Um, yep. You know, if if to me, if you're in a fee-based model, those are the last people that should be taking this kind of money. Hey, Jeff, you wanted to talk about something called semi-transparent ETFs, a pretty new uh, product out there. Uh, what are these things? Uh, what's their appeal? And how are they different from good old-fashioned uh, ETFs? Yeah, uh, good topic for for this format here because it's uh, it's it's a little bit a little bit kind of weird and messy, and it has some interesting twists there. A semi-transparent ETF is something that the the asset management industry has been trying to get through the Securities and Exchange Commission for the better part of a decade. What these are is actively managed ETFs, exchange traded funds, that are not disclosing their holdings on a daily basis, like any other ETF. Now, granted, most ETFs- well, Actively managed ETFs have been around for a while. They right? have, but the but those all have to disclose their holdings on a daily basis. Right. See, the, the bulk of the ETF space is index-based. Yes. So you really, you know, if you got an S&P 500 ETF, you know what's in that. It's the S&P 500. Exactly. Right? Yep. If you have a large cap growth actively managed ETF, you're going to know what's in it because they have to disclose it. Now, mutual funds that are actively managed, they don't have to disclose their holdings until every quarter, every three months. So 
But the mutual fund. And why is that? Uh, I, it's just the way the rules are. But the mutual fund industry likes that because right. they think that their their portfolio managers are so brilliant that they anybody that if anybody sees their portfolios on a daily basis, they'll try and front run that and do that do exactly what these portfolio managers are doing and getting paid a lot of money to do. So yeah, you the, remember the, when that used to be a big deal, like 20 years ago, when Bill Miller, right, at Lake Mason would sell out of a certain position or add a position? That would be a whole week's worth of news almost. Yeah, I mean, it, but active management has taken a tremendous hit over the past couple of decades. and It sure has. And all the money is going into mostly indexed strategies and then mostly ETFs. So, uh, and... Financial advisors are the biggest users of ETFs. So the asset management industry wants a piece of that. They don't want to lose all this ground. They got all these brilliant people managing portfolios. Well, the ETFs are much cheaper than mutual funds, right? They're a lot cheaper. Uh, That's part of the appeal. Right. So these semi-transparent products, they basically allow you to manage an active strategy inside an ETF that trades throughout the day, just like a single stock. And they don't have to share their holdings What's what's in the portfolio until every three quarters? Or, I'm sorry, every three months, once a quarter. So that's the appeal. So the, it looks the, more like a traditional mutual fund, uh, or it operates more like a traditional mutual fund. Well, it trades like a stock or like an ETF, right? Throughout the day, but disclosure is at the mutual fund level. That's interesting. That's why the asset management industry likes this. Yeah. Um, and right now, so who are the big players? Who are making? Who's making the big push on this? Well. There's five companies that have gotten exemptive relief from the SEC to use technology that allows for this to happen because it's it takes some technology to be able to manage these portfolios without because the market makers have to know what's in these they have to have a, at least a proxy for what's in these portfolios in order to price them for trading. So there's technology. There's five companies that have that technology out there, and one of them is Fidelity. And Fidelity is also one of the three companies, uh, American Century and Leg Mason, along with them, that have actually launched uh, some of these semi-transparent ETFs. But Fidelity, they kind of they're they're kind of double dipping on this thing, and that's not meant to sound in a negative way, which that way that phrase is usually used. But w- because they're actually they have products on the market, these semi-transparent ETFs, and they have the the technology that they're licensing to other companies. Uh, they've licensed so far to Goldman Sachs and Invesco to, to use this technology to, so they're going to get licensing fees. Plus they're, they're getting the, uh, the, I, I guess they're getting a piece of this semi-transparent market. Semi-transparent well, that's smart of fidelity then, right? Sounds like. Yeah. It's smart of anybody that wants to develop. I mean, Invesco for their part, they're trying to get their own, uh, technology through the SEC also. So they're kind of covering all their bases. But to me, the one of the more unique aspects of this thing is it, it's really hard to tell what the appetite is for these semi-transparent ETFs. Because so far, I mean, Fidelity, they launched theirs about- Will advisors use them? Uh, I don't know. Fidelity launched theirs about six weeks ago and their first, their largest one's got like $20 million in it, which is, it's not horrible- but it's certainly not, you know, knocking the cover off the ball. I don't think most advisors are really paying that much attention to this. And the asset management industry is 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 banking heavily on this. They think it's going to be the coolest thing that you can have an active strategy inside an ETF that trades throughout the day. 
The well, there'll be is, a lot of, you know, after the COVID, there'll be a lot of steak dinners, I would wager, hosted by <laughs> companies promoting these semi-transparent ETFs, man, because that's how the advisors quite often learn about these things is through these industry meetings and being taken out to dinners and having speakers and the like, right? Yeah, that's a good point. The timing couldn't be worse for these things. The, the for three a new product. companies that yeah. have launched, they launched them this year and we haven't had a conference. We haven't had, you know, face-to-face meetings. We haven't had anything uh, except, I don't know, press releases and wonderful coverage in investment news on this topic. Yeah, I don't think advi- advisors are just focused on working their clients right now and you know, in terms of doing anything new or different, I mean, a lot of time has got to pass for that to occur, I think. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely something that's, it's, it's, it's a, I think it's a product kind of looking for an investor right at this point. I'm, I'm not yet convinced, but you know, performance uh, speaks volumes. So uh, if these things stand up performance wise, uh, that's really all you need. Money will find it. Well said. Jeff, what's the benefit to investors or advisors uh, to use a semi-transparent ETF over another type of ETF or another product? Well, it's in most cases, almost every case, these semi-transparent ETFs are going to be kind of a clone of a mutual fund that's already in existence or a mutual fund strategy that's already in existence. So therefore, it's going to be cheaper. I mean, ETFs are just inherently cheaper than mutual funds. And it's going to trade throughout the day. I mean, you know, most financial advisors say that's not a super big advantage because you shouldn't be trading throughout the day unless you're a day trader. But uh, you can get in and get out of it more more rapidly. As, as you know, a mutual fund only trades once a day. You're still not going to be able to see what's inside the portfolio on a daily basis, but it will be more liquid and it will be cheaper. So that's the advantage. But the fund industry is banking heavily that investors and advisors will go after this because it is active management, which has been hamstrung for more than a decade. And for our next topic, Bruce, uh, I hear there's a new guy in charge of recruiting at Satera. What do you know about that? Yeah, this is interesting. So Satera had a shakeup earlier this year among some senior people, including uh, senior recruiting people at the firm. And what they've done is they've replaced those people with a new guy named John Pierce. And John, most recently, was very successful at a regional slash wirehouse, Stiefel Financial, uh, where he's he was head of recruiting for really the past four or five years. He's been in the business for almost 30 years and was a longtime Merrill Lynch guy like so many, so many people out there, right? Cut their teeth at Merrill Lynch for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and then, you know, get kind of... Uh, leave Merrill Lynch for any number of reasons and wind up populating these other firms. So his name's John Pierce. He had a lot of success at Stiefel. Stiefel was consistently uh, among the top recruiters of wirehouse advisors and brokers. Regional firms like Stiefel pay a little bit better than big wirehouses do. So that's a huge advantage. And they also don't emphasize this uh, advisors selling banking products nearly as much as some of the big bank-owned wirehouses do. So that's another competitive advantage. So it's going to be interesting to see what John does with Satera, uh, Satera Financial Group, which is a collection of uh, five or six different broker-dealers under one marketing name of Satera Financial Group. 
And, um, you know, the firm, Cetera, has had its ups and downs over the years. It was owned by Nick Schorsch. It went into bankruptcy. It got out of bankruptcy. It's owned by private equity. And John really put a jolt into the recruiting at Stiefel. And it's going to be interesting to see if he can do uh, replicate his success here at Cetera. Uh, which is a different value proposition, right? What it's not a it's not a, a regional that can attract wirehouse brokers, right? Right. It's an independent broker dealer slash RIA network, and the problem that Satera and others have is that they're competing with LPL Financial, right, <laughs> and Raymond James and Commonwealth, which are really behemoths in that side of the industry, particularly. LPL, which is attracting um, a lot of advisors uh, and paying them handsomely, too, to move to their uh, uh, platform. So what, so what does what does Satera have to do, though, in your mind, to to kind of stack up against somebody like LPL? I mean, we get LPL press releases all every day. They're they're recruiting people. I mean, and they're recruiting people from you know big name firms, right? Like yeah, Advisor exactly. Group, Wells Fargo. Ameriprise, etc. Um, you know mm-hmm. what? What talks loudest in this business, right? In any business, is money. Yeah. So, in my estimation, Satera is going to have to make it more valuable for advisors to join one of their broker dealers. I mean, they they've all been improving their technology, so I don't think there's any, you know, standout in that department. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also all have open architecture platforms where you can use different custodians. And if you want to c- custody some assets at Schwab or Fidelity, you can do that. Um, that's pretty common in, among independent broker dealers. Right. So you really got to pay the advisors and LPL is doing that. And that's one of the reasons why they've been so successful, if not the chief reason. Does uh Satera have the money? Did they did they get a PPP loan by chance? <laughs> They're too big. <laughs> They're too yeah. big to get a PPP loan. Uh-huh. They have a thousand. They have fifteen hundred or uh, employees, seventeen hundred employees, something like that. Uh, uh, Five hundred employees or less to get one of those loans, Jeff, that you hate so much. <laughs> you got to stop saying that, Bruce. I don't hate the loans. For the record, I don't hate the loans. I just <laughs> okay. think that uh, everybody shouldn't be taking them. Uh, anyway, Jeff, you think this that this time is a good time for advisors to think about alternative uh, asset classes and alternative investments. Um, I'm always leery of these things because I seem to be consistently writing about REITs or private placements that are sold as alternative investments and then tend to blow up on investors. Right. Why is now a good time for alternative investments? And what do you mean broadly when you speak about when you when you think about or write about alternative investments as an asset class? Well, when I when I talk about alternatives, I'm talking about four basic things. Real assets, which can include real estate, timberland, farmland, right, hedge funds, private equity, and private debt. Those are the, and these are high level sophisticated for accredited investors only. There are liquid uh, mutual funds, liquid alts, they call them, that have many of these strategies. But for these purposes, I'm, I'm talking about advisors that have clients that have the net worth and accreditation to invest in these pure alternative strategies. And uh, 
the case for this is that we're at a point in the cycle that is, it, it just looks dicey. The market, even if you take the coronavirus out of the picture, you know, the, the market, the S&P is down, I think, less than 2% this year. That's not terrible, even though it's been a bumpy ride to get to this point. But we're at the- It sure has. We're at the end of a, of a long economic cycle, a long bull market. The, the economy is already in a recession. The uncertainty is just all over the place. Interest rates are, are near zero. So you're not getting anything from fixed income. So you've got three choices, basically. You can you can ride it out in whatever 60, 40, 70, 30 model you're, you're dealing with. You can try and time the market or you can diversify. And uh, I, I just don't think enough advisors uh, consider diversifying out of stocks and bonds at, at any time, let alone now. Um, and and what, what are some of the hard assets uh, that you, uh, in your reporting, think could provide the kind of returns that would smooth out, you know, an investor's portfolio in the coming years? Well, what do you like out there? In other words, well, real estate is the is the usually the go to, right? And and as as you put it, Bruce, smoothing out is what you're looking for. That's why people turn to to uh, to the kind of diversity that alternatives generally provide. I mean, you have to think of diversity. But aren't bonds like supposed to do that for your portfolio? I thought bonds were the kind of the- <laughs> they're supposed to. But in case you haven't noticed, the Fed has pushed interest rates to the floor, right? So you're not getting anything from bonds. So most advisors that are diversifying into some type of alternative right now are taking that from the fixed income slice. And because you, you have to take it from somewhere, right? You still need the growth from equities. But you know, you're looking for diversity and you just have to think of alternatives as like an insurance policy. You know, they're, they're, you want them there for when you need them. And in a diversified portfolio, you're always going to have something that's not, you know, doing great. And, and that's the thing. I, I, it just, there's a lot of arguments to be made at this point in the cycle, if there ever was. And you can't do this in hindsight. You can't sit there and wait until after the market has hit the floor, like, March 2009 to to start diversifying into alternatives. That's what happened last time. The market hit the floor and everybody said, well, I got to diversify because I got crushed on this thing. And that's when you didn't want to be diversified because the market went virtually straight up for a decade. Right. Um, it's just a food for thought kind of thing. The the industry's looking at it now and it's a it's a forward thinking idea. And the handwriting is on the wall. The Fed is doing what it's doing because it wants to move people into to risk assets. You you can't sit there in fixed income and do anything. That's that's the Fed's way of kind of helping the economy and managing inflation and hopefully unemployment. And, and you kind of, that's why they always say, don't fight the Fed. If that's what they're giving you, you take it. If you're going to sit there in fixed income and earn nothing, not, not even be able to keep up with inflation, that's going to hurt most people, especially people in or near retirement. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's the, that's the take on that. And I, I, I'm kind of talking my book because I wrote a big cover story on that topic that is coming out. The same day this uh, this webcast comes out, or podcast, I'm sorry, podcast. Same day this podcast comes out on uh, Monday. So I'll make sure to read on it. On that, yeah, uh, well, I hope you do, Bruce. I hope you read it several times. On that note, 
uh, we're now at the point in our podcast where we talk about the open notebook segment. And this year we've got a little live uh, in ma- reporter in the field segment with Bruce Kelly braving all odds and wearing, I think, two or three masks at the same time and uh, schlepping into the New York office where he hasn't been since, uh, what, March? When we shut since it down? Since the first week of March. First or second week of March. It's literally, I think it was March 10th was the last day I went to the office. Yeah. And I was in the office yesterday, which was uh, July 8th. Uh-huh. So that's literally four months. Yeah. And, you know, I live in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I'm a city mouse. And I live in Upper Manhattan. And uh, so, but I've been riding the trains periodically to just do stuff in the city that you need to do to get from one part of the city to another. Uh-huh. And uh, the trains have been fine, but it was going back. It was literally going into Midtown. Our offices are on 44th Street and 3rd Avenue, a very bustling part of Midtown uh, that's usually filled with tourists and business people. Mm-hmm. And many listeners on our podcast know it. It's right by Grand Central Station, if if you need a landmark. And uh, it's a re- as I said, it's a really vibrant, busy area, you know. And it was just downright weird <laughs> to go yeah. back there. It was empty. It was like going to work on a, and I've done this before several times, going to work on a weekend in the middle of the summer, mm-hmm. like at the end of July, like Fourth of July weekend. Uh, when no one's there because no one's supposed to be there. But here right. now it's no one's there because people are all working from home. And so it was a very strange experience. I was in the office all day by myself, but I was able to, you know, I wanted to do that so my routine could shift around a little bit. And I'll be going back into the office uh, a couple of days a week, most likely for the rest of the summer. But, you know, you could just see the devastation to small businesses. Yeah. Um, a lot of places, about half the places where people would get stuff for lunch or pick up something on the way home or something like that. About half these places were closed, you know, and they're not coming back. Let me ask you, Bruce, about your experience. I mean, you know, I've been working from my home for two decades. Okay. I, yes. you know, I recently moved to North Carolina, but uh, prior to this, I was working for investment news out of my home in Michigan. And so I'm one of the few people I know that whose job has not really been disrupted, aside from the fact that I don't travel anymore, which I really miss. Do your experience... Yeah, you're a conference <clears throat> jockey, yeah. man. You're, you hit all the conferences. But, but your experiences, do you anticipate... Uh, I mean, what have you learned from the work at home experience? Do you think that that you see yourself going forward, maybe working from home a few days a week, or, or did you not like it? Or... I mean, I see the whole industry as being having a different attitude toward working at home. I mean, sometimes it just makes sense, especially if you've got a long commute, you know? Well, I think that the whole knock on working at home is that your boss is going to think that you're goofing off the whole time, right? Yeah, that's in some instances, that's the way bosses see that. They want to be they want to see you and they want to be able to watch what you're doing. So, you know, and you and I have worked for people who 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 think that. You know? Yeah. So, you know, it really depends upon your relationship with your boss, one, I think. Uh-huh. And then uh, next, I really, I like going to the office. Mm-hmm. You know, I will gladly go back to the office. I don't know if I want to go back 100% of the time, but definitely, you know, 50% of the time or something like that, I'm, I'm fine with, or, you know, 60% of the time, I have no problem with, you know? Yeah, it, so, might, it might be a long time before people are going back to the office 
100 percent of the time. I think even at Investment News, we're talking about staggering it uh, when right. we do start to go back. And I'm wondering, you know, the financial services industry, obviously, they're no different. People are going to go back in in pieces and travel is going to come back uh, in pieces with conferences eventually. But I don't even see a conference on the agenda for 2020 right now. Everything yeah, no, I think everything's canceled. You know, everything's canceled. So, but I mean, there is this on, on Wall Street, at least, you know, uh, people like James Gorman, who's the CEO of Morgan Stanley, you know, they've repe- mm-hmm. pe- he's repeatedly said that we're not going to all stay at home in the future. There's the big Wall Street belief that the culture, right, right, of the firm is important, and you need how do you create that culture mm-hmm. by all being in an office together and hustling and coming in on the weekends together, right, uh-huh. and hustling and being you know and being competitive, right. That's very different from a place like LPL, which is basically a service and technology firm for advisors who have their own individual offices. Uh-huh. So, and LPL has like two or three different campuses in San Diego and South Carolina and, and the small office in Boston still. So they're already disparate. They're way ahead of the curve, you know? Yeah. But I think that the thing here is that by working from home, big companies like Morgan Stanley and and others can save a lot of money because they don't need to pay the rent on the real estate. And that's the, mm-hmm. you know, that's what's going to dictate a lot of how people work going forward. I yeah, I, I, I've said for a long time that there are so many industries where people don't need to be in an office. And ours is one of them, obviously. But some people still prefer it. I mean, like you said, you'd like going into the office. To me, I feel like it's a, you know, kind of a time drain because I spend too much time talking about football and everything else with people when I could be working. But um, it, 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 you can do some jobs from anywhere. Some jobs, there's you know, manufacturing. Obviously, you have to be in the building. But um, I think financial services is going to evolve into this. I mean, this thing has lasted long enough now that people are forced to make it work. And as people are making it work, I think a lot of people are realizing that there are ways to be as or more productive without going into an office. Hey, Jeff, that was a great podcast. Yeah, we uh, we really knocked the cover off the ball. I'm going to give it two thumbs up. <laughs> um, well, that was this week's investment news podcast. Uh, we're posting a new one every Monday, um, and you can find it at investmentnews.com. Jeff, you can also find it at Apple, Spotify. I love Spotify, Google Play and Stitcher. Uh, Jeff and I would love to get some feedback from people. Uh, You can give us a review or a snarky comment or whatever. Reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, Jeff Benjamin is at Benji Writer. And I, Bruce Kelly, is at, uh, at BD News Guy. Uh, We want to thank uh, Steve and Audrey and Matt, our production team, and we'll be talking to you next week. Mm